Well, good morning, Fondren Church. I want to begin uh, today's message like, um, like I did last week by um, encouraging you to turn to the book of Exodus. If you'd like to turn there, I want you to know, rest easy. We're going to be looking at select passages from chapter 4 through chapter 12. That doesn't mean today's message will be long. It just means we're going to weave through and look at uh, several passages, and all the scripture will be up on the screen today, I believe. So relax if you want to. Um, I want to encourage you to think about your, um, your schedule this week. In our three and a half plus years of being a church family, we've uh, never brought someone in from the outside to address our church family. And this Wednesday night, we have a real uh, unique opportunity. Um, you may have heard me speak about this last week or see it on our social media sites. But we are bringing in John Sowers this Wednesday night at 6.30, and you're invited. In fact, we hope you'll attend as a church, as a community. We think uh, more deeply, more broadly about the world in which we live, the need for the good news of the gospel. And our prayer is that God will continue to turn our hearts toward the fatherless. John Sowers um, has been in the Oval Office. He's been on the big shows. He's written two best-selling books. And he started what is called, he's the founder and president of an organization called The Mentoring Project. And John Sowers and Donald Miller and some of these guys, they get the fact, the reality, the last verse of the Old Testament in Malachi, it talks about the hearts of children turning back toward their fathers and the hearts of fathers being turned back to their children. That's how the Old Testament ends in that story is still being written. And these guys have a real heartbeat to call the church um, to think about the fatherless, to think about mentoring, to think about one life taking on another life. So I pray that you'll be here. I pray that you'll carve out time, that you'll look at your schedule, and whatever you have, you'll change it. Uh, if you're in a small group, I already hope and pray that that small group leader is going to lead you here. Uh, if he's not, he or she isn't, I want to ask you to be the contrarian, okay? Be the, the outlaw, the misfit, and tell your group leader, hey, I'm going to the church house tonight to hear John speak. And I, I think we'll all be inspired. I think we'll be informed. And honestly, if we're comfortable, I think we'll be afflicted a little bit. And uh, some of you tell me, I want to be involved in a church that'll challenge me. And that's why we partnered up with a local ministry to bring in John. And hope you'll be here Wednesday night, 630 Right here, y'all just nod, just let me know you heard me so we can go on with the message. Uh, where is God? Difficult question, isn't it? I do want to say thank you for some of you who take the time to email me. Some of you think, ah, I get so many emails. Uh, not necessarily. And I tell you, I've always got room when you share with me your story of how you're dealing with the question in your own life of where is God? This morning, where is God, as we've said, where is God in my spiritual search? Now, we are, by nature, as humans, we are creatures that search. Searching, it's in our stories from the giant in Jack and the Beanstalk, shouting fee-fi-fo-fum, looking for the golden harp, to Captain Ahab, who takes his troubled soul into the dangerous waters, risking his crew and his mission to discover the great white whale Moby Dick. We see searching in uh, our desire to discover. Ponce de Leon and the Fountain of Youth. Columbus in a new world. Galileo and the moon around Jupiter. Jonas Salk peering through a thousand different microscopes to discover the vaccine to cure polio. Thomas Edison experimenting with a thousand different substances to find one that could produce the filament of electrical light. 
We are searchers. We long for the lost horizon, for the new frontier, for the magic formula, for the ultimate trophy. We hunt for animals and gems, for the cure for cancer, for the solution to the national debt. We look for dates and jobs and bargains. We, we, are, we hunt. We go on searches. We have scavenger hunts and in a few weeks, Easter egg hunts. And we play hide and seek. I love the story of the six-year-old boy who his dad took him out back to discover a new litter of kittens. And he comes in excited. He's breathless as he tells his mom, there's two little girl kittens and four little boy kittens. And she says, that's great. How do you know? And he said to his mom, well, dad lifted them up and looked underneath. I I guess it's printed on the bottom. (laughs) We have searches. We are by nature searches, searchers. But I want to say that the most important search that you and I will ever go on is the spiritual search. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this, but without faith, it's impossible to please him, to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. You get that, don't you? And that he, is a, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You see, your spiritual search is your most important search. And in this passage, I think the most important word is the word earnestly. You see, I think you know some people who've told you, I hadn't found what I'm looking for. And you tell me you've found God through the person of Jesus, but I haven't found that. I haven't found him, but I've searched. But the search, is it an honest search? Is it an earnest search? And this morning, I want to submit to you that there's a couple of really searches that aren't earnest. They're not honest. And one is when we're searching for a pain-reducing God. I believe this typifies the people of Israel. Exodus chapter 4, verse 29 and following, the first passage we'll look at. It says this, then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed down their heads and they worshiped. Now leave that up if you would. God did signs and they believed. God, they were promised, saw their affliction and they bow down. Isn't that just like us? See a sign, see something happen, we believe. God, you're aware of me. If you are, I know that you are, I'll bow down and I'll worship. But people that are looking for only a pain-reducing God, they see God as sort of spiritual valium for their pain. And there's something in us that makes us more interested, more inclined to feeling happy than finding God. And can I tell you that all the prior sermons you've heard, especially the last four weeks and any in the future, because you live in the real world, can I just say it's going to be really hard for the good news of the gospel, for what's right about God to get past what's wrong with you if your number one desire is finding happiness. In all due respect to the framers of our Constitution, who said the pursuit of happiness 
is your and my inalienable right. Finding happiness is another thing. But everybody, both people of faith and people, secular people who've studied happiness, will tell you that if that's what you're after, it's going to be elusive. Are you more today, are you more interested in finding happiness, feeling happy, or finding God? Now, you see the people. They believe that's a good thing. What more can you ask for? Believe in God. They bow down and worship. What more can you ask for? Worship. But look at Exodus chapter 5. Verses 6 and and 9. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. When you're mad at somebody, what do you say to them? Do it yourself. You said that around the house? How does that work for your marriage? Hey, do that yourself. You want a sandwich? Go get it yourself. That's bitter people, angry people. Hey, Pharaoh said, they can do it themselves, but the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. Notice the language. You shall by no means reduce it. They wanted a pain reducing God. They wanted the load that they were bearing to be less, but it's now about to become greater. Is that true with God? Can that happen? Aren't we supposed to tout all the glowing benefits? Aren't we supposed to make this real inviting and easy? I would love it, church, if you would say no. They shall by, thank you. They shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Were they idle? No, they have backbreaking labor, and Pharaoh is spinning the yarn here. Therefore, they, the, the Israelites, they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Chapter 6, I'm sorry, chapter 5 and verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They knew they had an enemy and they knew that that enemy had it in for them. Chapter six, verse nine. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Time out. Is that the same people? They, uh, those people had just believed. Those, those same people had just bowed down. They believed because they saw signs. They bowed down because they thought God had seen their affliction. But were they more interested in feeling good or finding God? Spiritual Valium, God relieve me of my pain. A second search, church, that's not an earnest or honest search for God is a search where we look for a prosperity-producing God, okay? We, we, we look for a prosperity-producing God. We're looking for a spiritual voltage for our plan. Just as the one, like the people of Israel, are looking for a pain-reducing God, as they are looking for spiritual valium for their pain, uh, those who are looking for a prosperity-producing God are looking for spiritual voltage. We see this search in the leader, the man named Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh was interested in God to the extent 
that God would advance his agenda. Can you, church, see any implications of that? Maybe it's the athlete who's pursuing God but wants the all-star game or the hall of fame. Maybe it's the business entrepreneur who wants success in building the business. Maybe it's the political candidate that wants re-election. Maybe it's the single person who's longing for a spouse. They're interested in God to the extent that God will prosper them, to the interest that God will advance their very own agenda. Listen to me, folks. There is a, there is a sin. There is a sin that is so common to the human experience that it is a gateway to all other sins. And this, this idea, this sin, it promises us that we'll be bigger and better and more important. But it leaves us smaller and meaner and less important. It stifles our connection with other people. It stands in the way of your relationship with your heavenly Father because pride crowds out other people. Pride crowds out God. Pride is a prison. And Pharaoh was a man of pride. His spiritual search for God was in a God who would produce prosperity in his life. Look at this passage related to Pharaoh, Ephesians, oh, I'm sorry, Exodus 5 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Do you get the mockery? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, who is Pharaoh's Lord? Himself. Exodus 7 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord has said. By the way, some of you are jumping really deep into this study. You're reading Swindoll's book on Moses, and, and there's a, you know, reading such um, ancient literature can bring questions to mind, right, for modern ears like ours. And there are passages in Exodus that say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And there are passages that say Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And if you want to dig deeper into that, I, I'm not going to take the time to explain it. I would bore you. You would leave. But uh, let me suggest, even though I'm an ESV guy, let me suggest the Quest Study Bible and the NIV has some great notations all throughout, a lot of study pages at the bottom. The Quest Study Bible in the NIV can give some great insight into what for us is confusing. But Pharaoh, his heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pride can close you off, can't it? Isn't that crazy? Isn't that, isn't that really weird? Because it's the opposite side of the same very thin slice of coin. For you to think, hey, what's gonna make me feel bigger and better and more important is the very thing that reduces you. You know, the scripture teaches us what every psychologist in the room and in the world will confirm, that pride is the gateway sin. It's the chief sin. It masquerades itself at times in your life and mine as insecurity. But y'all, pride is a prison. And while in the Old Testament, it's over and over talks about people who have a hard heart and a stiff neck, at the core of it is pride. We want, and let's just agree, there's something in us there's that element of pride in us all that we want to fashion God to be the God that we want. And we want him to be a prosperity-producing God in our lives, don't we? A little boy prayed at Christmas time for a bike. He wanted a new bicycle. 
And he prayed, dear Jesus, I pray that when I wake up on Christmas Day, I'll have a new bike. And Christmas came. No new bike. He had some resiliency, a little bit of resolve. He prays again, Lord, I've asked you and I pray again, being, being persistent. I pray, God, that you give me a new bike. No bike. And he went to the family room and he got the statue of Mary off the top of the nativity scene on the mantle and he wraps it in a towel and he prays another prayer. Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother alive again. <laughs> That's in us. That's in us. The fashioning of God to be who we want. God, I'm going to give you another shot. Give me what I want. Give it to me now. I'm walking away. If you read this section of scripture, or if you just hearken back to the Charlton Heston movie or to uh, the smash hit, uh, the Bible series on, was it A&E or NBC sometime last year, you'll recall this phenomenal scene of the plagues. And God, in a way to get Pharaoh's attention, in a way to soften an evil leader's heart. And by the way, can I say that nothing has changed really through the centuries? When you look at major problems, and some pastors and leaders of our world uh, have done this, when you look at problems of, of racism and poverty and injustice and hatred and slavery, on and on, at the top of the list, you have to include evil, oppressive leaders who hurt a lot of people. So we get into the severe part of the story. Some of you say, isn't it severe? It's severe. And so is the evil oppression of this leader named Pharaoh. And he sends plagues. The first plague, some of you know, was the Nile River was turned to blood. Years ago, I went to Chicago over St. Paddy's Day weekend. And they put some type of green chemical into the Chicago River and turned it green. And it was fun, right? St. Patrick's Day. It was a fun thing. It smelled a little bit odd, but people celebrated it along the river. You can imagine. It was a, a glorious scene. We were all bundled up, but we celebrated the Green River in downtown amidst the high-rises and the fun. This Nile River was full of blood, and the fish died, and the smell was horrific. And the next plague, the plague number two, that God brought to the Egyptians, not the Israelites, but to the Egyptians. You ever been in the path of a tornado or hurricane and it got somebody's house but not your house? And that's what happened in this ancient land. God brings the Nile River to blood and he brings frogs. And can you imagine? Frogs hopping up your pants legs. Frogs in your bathtub. You open the oven, you open it up to frogs. You pull down the cheats at night, there's frogs in your bed. To the Egyptians but not to the Israelites. And the third plague, uh, depending on the version of the scripture you have, uh, God brought gnats. Uh, most scholars that I've studied this week believe that these were essentially mosquitoes, which I'm not just saying that to relate to a Mississippi crowd, right? But there were mosquitoes, and they were the, these mosquitoes filled their eyes and their ears and their nostrils. And then another plague that was brought was the livestock. Egyptian livestock 
laid out dead. And there, was, there were boils. I was going to put pictures of everyone up on the screens, but the, the, the boil picture just got the best of me. You wouldn't want that. But uh, boils, these festering boils on everybody's skin. And after that, hell, thunder and lightning and literally all hell broke loose, probably where we got the expression. And then there were locusts that descended in the darkness of the night and destroyed their crops and their fruit. And the scripture tells us that this was the point where Pharaoh had almost had enough. He was almost about to yield. He was about to come to the end of himself. But you know, you can be that way, can't you? You can, you can be really frustrated. You can be, listen to me, you can be miserable, but not really broken. You can be miserable, but not broken. Miserable people shake their fist at God and other people. Miserable people have road rage and traffic, right? Miserable people cut you off and cut you down. That's what miserable people do. They're cranky and ornery and just an ogre to live with. That's what miserable people are. But broken people, Psalm 34, in fact, a broken and contrite spirit is the, the prayer that the Bible guarantees will move the heart of God. But Pharaoh was not broken. Look at Exodus chapter 10. Then Pharaoh hastily, okay, now here's why he did this hastily, because his officials had come to him. His officials came to him and they said, hey, leader, you're the man, but we are encouraging you as your advisors, as your officials, we're saying, let the people go. Because the economy, could you imagine what had happened to the economy? The economy was in the tank. National morale was at a low, probably an all-time low, and Pharaoh's popularity was plummeting. And what does an ego-driven, pride-filled leader do when their popularity is plummeting? They hastily have to do something. And Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. It seems that he's softening. It seems that he needs something new. It seems that there's a little bit of repentance here. But bound up in his heart is a proud man. And after the locusts, the scripture tells us the ninth plague was darkness. Now some would think, I've been studying this this week, some would think darkness, no big deal. I mean, after all that other stuff, <clears throat> But a lot of scholars believe the darkness was among the worst. How many of you are afraid of the dark? Don't raise your hand. It's a real source of shame. But some of us are, right? Some of us are, are afraid of the dark. Some grown men raised their hand. That's got to hurt. But some of us are afraid of the dark. And can you imagine three days of darkness? Moses searching for prosperity. How does the prosperity gospel preach today? It sells books, doesn't it? If we stand here and only tout the benefits, if we don't talk about taking up your cross and denying yourself and blessing those who persecute you and loving those who are your enemies and turning the other cheek and doing the hard things that we're called to do as followers of Jesus, it can sell books and apparently fill arenas and churches. Matt Chandler, 
from his book Explicit Gospel says the following. The universe shudders in horror that we have this infinitely valuable, infinitely deep, infinitely rich, infinitely wise, infinitely loving God, and instead of pursuing him with steadfast passion and enthralled fury, instead of loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, instead of attributing to him glory and honor and praise and power and wisdom and strength, we just try to take his toys and run. It is still idolatry to want God for his benefits, but for not himself. That's where Pharaoh was. Just as the people of Israel were searching for a pain-reducing God, Pharaoh in his pride was searching for a prosperity-producing God. And then we know the 10th plague, Exodus chapter 12. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Even Pharaoh's son. Think about this. If you dig deeper, you'll learn that the invitation for this Passover lamb was a little lamb. We might have one pictured for effect. But this this little lamb was uh, brought in. It was brought in by the patriarch, usually the the father uh, of the home. He would bring in this little lamb. And uh, do we have a picture of that? There. On the 10th day, the lamb, the lamb was brought in. But according to the custom... The lamb was not sacrificed until the 14th day. So stay with me as you look at this lamb. Don't look at me. Look at the lamb. (laughs) Both are cute. (laughs) Both make you go, oh. (laughs) The 10th day, the lamb is brought inside the family home. The family, the entire family is involved in the ritual. But the sacrifice takes place on the 14th day. Why? Imagine with me that lamb in the house with the children. Four days. Cuddling, playing, possibly naming. And then imagine an eight-year-old boy when the lamb is about to be sacrificed, cries out, Dad, Dad, why this lamb? And the dad says back to the son, it's the lamb or it's you. Severe? Yes. So is the severity, so is the severity of sin. So is the oppression of the people for 435 years. Their women were being raped. Their little boys were being thrown into the river. And this this lamb, this sacrifice was a message to everyone seeking after the heart of God that forgiveness to a holy God requires a sacrifice and that sacrifice is not an impersonal one. John chapter 1 and verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming, he being John the Baptist, coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. A little bit of obscurity here at the front. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened this part. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from your, the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, the lesson in this, it's twofold. Number one, the first lesson is that salvation comes through the blood of the Lamb. You're called to trust Him. And the second lesson is this. God leads us to new places. Follow Him. Look at this in the story from Exodus chapter 12 as we close. Then He summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. And go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. God brings us into new places, into freedom. And it's really important for religious people, for church-going folks to hear this because it's been misunderstood and inverted. We're called to freedom. Jesus leads us into freedom. The one who is the lamb, the very personal sacrifice for your sins and mine. And let me say this because somebody needs to hear it this morning. In the eyes of Jesus, who alone matters, can I say? In the eyes of Jesus, there are the forgiven and the forgivable. He leads us to new places as we follow him. Places of freedom. Freedom from and freedom to. Freedom from the bond of religion. From the teary of meaninglessness. From um, a life wasted. From the constant pounding of our past. From the shackles of addiction. And he leads us into Fresh dreams, new direction, a clean conscience, a living hope. If you're a note taker, write down Hebrews 9, 14. I just thought of it. I wish I had it before this and put it up on the screen, but it talks about the one who, who came and gave us a new covenant. Aren't you glad? I mean, God met people where they're at. You're never going to understand the Bible, the unfolding narrative of the Bible, if you don't realize that the Bible is not really a book. It's books. And they're real human authors. And they entered into a real mess with people. And they wrote things. These, these people wrote things to real people at an actual time in history. And God met everybody where their culture was at and moved them a little bit forward. I don't think we realize how progressive the good news of the gospel is. And Hebrews tells us. It's a book we're going to walk through later this year. But Hebrews 9.14 tells us that there's no more sacrifice like that. No more ritual like that for one man. One God-man has paid the price for your sin and mine. Salvation comes at a great cost. And we're called to follow Jesus into freedom. Now what does that freedom mean? I'm going to get you right now one more scripture, then I'm done. Hebrews chapter 11, I believe it's verse 20 to 23, talks about Moses. 
It talks about this man who suffered, who counted the cost, who walked through this journey of this temptation to search for a pain-relieving God or a prosperity-producing God, but he chose God for being who he really is. And God took him through some things, but it says he chose to believe him who is invisible. You see, maybe there's more to life than what we see. And maybe the final story has not been written. As we close, I made a promise to some pastor friends of mine around the country to, um, to play this today. To think about our God. And then to have a moment of silence as we think through and it is a very dangerous time to be a Christian. Torture, beheadings, destruction. The of highest people. level of persecution of Christians. A church congregation barricading themselves in from hundreds of riot police. They're enduring attacks for their faith like Along never with the savage kidnappings of Christian schoolgirls in Nigeria by Boko Haram and the burning of Christian images of violence dominate headlines. Christians are being warned they have a choice. Convert to Islam, pay a very steep price or face death. Chilling new video showing the beheading of 21 Egyptian Christians. Beheadings of 21 Christians. 21 Christian men beheaded by Islamic State. The title of the video is a message signed with blood to the nation of we the cross. The, the sharpest jump in violent uh, attacks against Christians. We need to make the persecuted church an issue of prayer. 